Welcome to the 34th Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. The 34 Circe Salon, Mate, Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am here with... John Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome, everyone. We are thrilled Hello. to uh, be bringing back our series In Praise of the Goddess. And, uh, and today we're very excited to be talking about Ishtar. We're spanning the globe to do it, too. We're on one side of the globe, and we'll be speaking with someone about Ishtar all the way around the world. We're going worldwide. Exactly. From Sydney um, all the way where it's already tomorrow. We are speaking with Anokina. And Anokina, I would love to have you introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about um, how you would like to be known. Um, yeah, so hi, my name's Anukina. I'm a displaced Assyrian woman, and I currently reside on the unceded territories of the Darug Nation here in so-called Sydney, Australia. I am actually a policy writer and have been working in government doing narrative writing for a really long time. I'm also a zine maker and a storyteller and only really recently began sort of delving into the cultural story of Ishtar. Well, I have a couple of questions right off the bat. That's just so fascinating. So you said Assyrian woman and Darig nation. So the listeners understand. So what the, the term Assyrian is a term I associate with the ancient world. So could you explain what exactly the Assyrian nation is and where it fits in the world today. And then what is the Darug nation? Right. Okay. So Assyrian people are a living culture. We're one of the oldest living cultures in the world. We identify as indigenous people. So we don't have sovereignty over our country. So you might have heard about us in history books and museums, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> we're very much still happening. We're a teeny tiny community and we're uh, displaced all over the world. Oh. Um, but we are just as passionate and inspired and, you know, creative, um, which is part of why, you know, I'm really excited about talking about an Assyrian goddess with you today. And I suppose as Indigenous people, 
a lot of our conceptualization of culture is very much intertwined with like First Nations concepts of identity and belonging. Mm -hmm. And so being born and raised on someone else's country, I was always really interested as a young person, like who are the First Nations people of where I live and how do I get to know them better? And so those people are called the Darug Nation. And in the last 20 years, I've been really privileged to sit with Darug elders, Darug community. Darug is a really big nation. And so they are divided into different clans and um, across the region. Um, yeah. And so a lot, of my, a lot of my inspiration in reconnecting to my cultural story um, is very much thanks to the inspiration and support I received from First Nations people here that, yeah, for a long time people would ask me, you know, who are you and where do you come from? And that's a really tricky question for displaced Indigenous people to answer. And so it was thanks to First Nations sort of intellectual labour that helped me kind of story my identity. It's sacred work to story ourselves back to the goddess. Like I feel like it is a healing practice for us to Mm. do so and to remind ourselves of our roots really. Yeah, that we're not trying to be in antagonistic relationship with each other but in harmonious relationship to country. Yes, that's wonderful. So let's talk about Ishtar. We're going to start with just some sort of book learning, and then we'll get into, um, and then we'll get into a little bit more personal relationship work with Ishtar. But Ishtar is Ishtar and Inanna are often elided together. Uh, from my understanding, they did start out as two different goddesses, or perhaps two different aspects from two different regions. So, Ishtar. Her name de- derives from uh, the Semitic god Atar, and uh, that cult of worship was focused in the regions of Akkad, Assyria, and Babylonia. In Nana, it is understood that she originated in Sumer, and that her name derives from a Sumerian phrase. Um, there's also some scholarship that says that Ishtar was sort of a, a later version of Inanna, that she um, became more complex as she assimilated some other goddesses um, that uh, had similar traits. Um, But Ishtar and Inanna and some uh, the Greek god Demeter, all are goddesses of that have a descent story. So they are all goddesses that go down into the underworld for various reasons. Um, and that is sort of their, um, their apocryphal story in many ways. Um, in, in Ishtar's case, she uh, loved a vegetation god, uh, Tammuz. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Tammuz? Yeah, sounds about right. Okay. and. Um, and so there are there are again different versions of the story. the The story that I kind of uh, favor is that um, Ishtar was um, an active goddess. She was um, she was curious. 
she was um, assertive, and she went down into the underworld to visit her sister, Arishkagal. And um, there is some speculation that maybe she was sort of scoping out the territory. And uh, Arishkagal felt a little bit worried about this, that maybe Ishtar was trying to sort of muscle in on her, her territory of the underworld. So she, uh, before Ishtar was allowed to come into the underworld, she has to pass through seven gates. And at each of those gates, she was required to leave an item of, a personal item of power, either a piece of jewelry, a crown, a necklace, or an item of clothing. So that by the time she stood before Rishkagal, she had been stripped of all of her items of power. And she stood before the sister, her sister just as herself. And according to the story, Arishkagal um, either judged her herself or put her up to be judged um, by uh, spirits of the underworld. However, it was decided, it was decided that Ishtar had to die. And so she was, uh, she was killed. She died immediately and her corpse was hung on a hook. Now, again, here the story uh, has a couple of different tellings, but um, she had, uh, she had told some people before she went down into the underworld, if I don't come back, look for me. Cause she had a feeling that this may not go entirely smoothly. Um, so, uh, Ninshabar, Ninshabur, her serving woman, her, her right hand woman. Um, and she told, uh, the god Enki or also in some stories, her uncle, Ea, um, they get involved and they go to Arishkagal and they say, you, you have to let her go. You have to bring her back. And they prevail upon Arishkagal and she says, yes, okay, she can come back into the upper world, but someone has to take her place in the underworld. And um, in the version of the story that I like, when Ishtar goes back up through the seven gates, takes upon her all of her items of power once again. And she sees Tammuz, her consort, and he's basically sitting in her place on the throne, living the high life, instead of, you know, being in the least bit worried that she's disappeared into the underworld and doesn't seem to be coming back. And so she says, you know what? He can go in my place. And so she sends him to the underworld in her place. And, uh, and so he has to stay down there. His sister takes pity on him and says, for six months out of the year, I'll stay down in the underworld. You can come to the upper world. And for the other six months, you have to stay down in the underworld. So it is um, a seasonal story where for six months, the world mourns Tammuz being down in the underworld. And those are the, those are the months of winter. And then when he comes back to the world and his sister takes his place, the world awakens again and the crops, the grain can grow. She is a moon goddess and uh, the sort of descent into the underworld. And then as she, as she loses power and then her rising back into the upper world as she gains power is sort of analogous with the moon waxing and waning every month. Um, she is 
uh, a goddess who had lusty loves. She is a goddess of love and a goddess of um, loving relationships, be they romantic relationships, familial relationships, or sexual relationships. And um, she is mentioned in the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh because she uh, propositions the hero and he says, uh, you know, I've seen what happens to your other lovers, so I'll pass. <laughs> and, uh, and she punishes him for this, for rejecting her. So she has, uh, she has both love magic and she is also a goddess of war. One of the, the sources I read said, both areas, love and war, are areas where swift reversals can take place. And so she, in a sense, rules over changes, abrupt changes in um, the state of mankind um, or womankind. So that's sort of my introduction to Inanna. One of the things, uh, excuse me, to Ishtar, you can punish me for that, Sean. Um, uh, I was just thinking because the, <laughs> and I and I love what you what you've described. Obviously, the similar story happens with Inanna, right? Uh, yes. in the Inanna's tradition. So, but we'll leave my Inanna on the side because this is all about Ishtar tonight. This so, is about Ishtar, indeed. Although, actually, we had talked earlier about that with Anakina. Just the notion of the names. Maybe this is a good place to discuss that a little bit, where you were talking about using how the names are used in your uh, tradition. Yeah, I mean, well, firstly, Dawn, you told that tale so well. So thank you. I really enjoyed hearing um, you speak about her. Um, yeah, look, the goddess Ishtar is also known as Inanna. And for many um, modern day people, the name is used interchangeably. And in my community, Inanna is known as Ishtar and Ishtar is known as Inanna and they are the same deity. Now, what were the mysteries of this from antiquity? We don't know. We can't be certain. Um, certainly there was like a process of syncretism that occurred and a lot of people kind of postulate that that was about power and regional control. And no doubt priestesses of the time were policy makers, and I write a lot about this in my work. Um, Enheduanna, for example, the daughter of Sargon of Akkad, uh, wrote in Sumerian um, precisely to win over the Sumerian-speaking people um, and to assert... I'm just yeah. giving her some applause because she... Thank uh, you. I, have, I have brought her up before. She's the first... I'm sorry, go ahead, Don. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah, she's the first individually identified author and poetess, right. and she yeah, yeah. and uh, in, the, in world history that we know of, in right? World history, so it's, it's it's extraordinary, and it's a hymn to well, the goddess that we're praising today. Precisely, and I kind of feel like even beyond her role as a public ritualist and poet um, of sort of hymns to deity, I kind of feel like public rituals and public festivals and even hymn making was very interconnected to, to policy making and sort of narrative building for the people. 
So mm. understanding Inanna Ishtar in her form as a really complex goddess with all of these, like to our modern Western mind who often thinks in binaries, you know, it can it can feel contradictory, I suppose, to think, well, how is she the goddess of love and war? I don't understand. Or, you know, why would the goddess of life and lust and fertility um, want to rule the underworld? Why does she descend to the place of no return? And I think that's precisely what's fascinating about um, Ishtar is she is a complex deity and there is an element of deity that is unknowable and is part of the cosmic mystery. And one way that I was taught by, by my fantastic longtime teacher, Glennis Livingston, is that, you know, the goddess Ishtar is the cosmic principle itself. So, yes, the descent, the descent myth is definitely like a seasonal cycle and a hint to how, you know, Assyrians understood the cycle of life and death. But even broader than that, I think it's, it's also about that, you know, Ishtar is, is the cosmic principle and the mystery itself and can cheat death, you know, is, is always life-affirming which is why, you know, she doesn't really feel fear as she descends to the underworld. Um, she has her strategy in place. Um, you know, she is rescued by the grace of the gods and that's a fantastic part of the tale, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. it's really rich. Um, yeah, I, there, is a, there is a sense about her in that story that's, that's an excellent point that she... Like she did not feel fear, even though she was ostensibly having her powers stripped from her. There is a there is a very strong sense in the in the tale in the narrative that she is like she is she is going forward like she is an unstoppable force. And even if she hadn't been rescued, it, it, there is the sense that at some point the worm would have turned, and she would right. have you know she would have come out of it. Um, even better, you know, it like transformed and more glorious for her, for her trials. I would, I would definitely echo that. Yes. You know, this is the wild bull queen. This is the priestess of heaven and earth. Like this is a formidable energy, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. How does that inform your practice or the, I guess I, I'm, when you practice, are you? Is this something that you are doing with a, a group of people, and you're you are taking the journey with each other? Or is this something you're doing yourself? And to that extent, how does that aspect of her the the idea of the cosmic principle? How does that inform your experience with it? Like I mentioned in the introduction, I'm a pretty new recruit to Ishtar. Actually, I never logically or intentionally set out to know her. If anything, I was way more interested in other goddesses. So I've been interested in Chthonic deity and, and how they might relate to us. And one story I tell it, um, is that it was actually the goddess Hecate who introduced me to Ereshkigal, who then introduced me to Ishtar. And I sort of ended up knowing um, Ishtar's story and felt compelled to know her more. And I think the reason why I felt compelled was, you know, growing up, I had no idea what 
my ancestral traditions were. Um, mm. My parents uh, raised us in, you know, colonial Australia. They wanted us to speak English and do well at school and not look back but look forward. And forwards for my parents was the Western English-speaking world. And so anytime I would ask, like, so who are we? Where do we come from? What is an Assyrian? They sort of, they fumbled their way through that. And I think at this point, I suspect it's because they really didn't know. They were also quite removed um, from any understanding. We were raised knowing that Ishtar is our great goddess, but we never knew her story. And we never knew why. And so I was sort of introduced to her in everyday life through a really Western lens. And I feel like for a long time, especially for me growing up, Ishtar kind of like has this like goddess babe kind of image, you know. (laughs) I always, she was presented in this way, like goddess of sex and lust and fertility and I never really knew how complex she was actually to, until years later and I and I started to understand the myth. Now, Sean, you asked, what does this look like in practice? Well, I feel like for Assyrian people and myself in particular, we're still kind of navigating our way through what it looks like and means. One way that we relate to Ishtar is not simply as deity but as ancestor. Ishtar for me is my ancestor. She is uh, a woman of my lineage from a long way back and her story has been told by the lineage over and over again and part of my duty of care or, you know, a way to honour that story is to to be part of keeping that story, you know. Um, And I think a lot of, a lot of, goddess scholars and second wave feminists who reclaimed a lot of these ancient texts really inspired me to do that work and I take that work seriously because they reintroduced us to this work as sacred practice whereas perhaps before it was simply like an interesting historical um, anecdote you know yes Um, yeah yeah. so we're re, we're, we are reweaving that back as a community. One of the one of the festivals that we have reclaimed is the Akitu Festival, which is the New Year's um, festival, which is the festival of the grain um, and the the springing forth of the grain. And so there's like public reenactments of the story and different honoring practices that um, people are bringing back and writing about one of my commitments was I started to tell this story publicly through my Instagram project um, and just sharing little things that I do um, to honor the seasonal cycle and to honor the goddess and of course the rest of the community is like oh that's so interesting because we do that too and it's sort of like intuitively we've all kind of reclaimed and reconnected the practices actually yeah that's wonderful that's wonderful do you think uh, by thinking of her as part of your ancestral lineage what strikes me is there 
tends to be a, a, a deeper commitment to a, you have this, you have a faith, but you also have a faith that is bound by the history of a people. Does it make it feel as if there is, that's a pathway that you are meant to be on in some sense, or rather than just a, not just, but rather than a tradition that, a faith tradition that you choose? I think so. I sense so. Yeah. I mean, whether I, whether I, intentionally choose Ishtar, you know, um, or not, she chooses me uh, simply Mm. because we are from that lineage. And I think that was part of what fascinated me about her, that I never really sought her out. I kind of felt like she seeks me out, you know. Um, And so even when I grapple with understanding her and reclaiming her, I kind of feel like that's okay because we're allowed to kind of pave the road. I think culture is allowed to be living and felt and and returned over and over again, you know? Yeah, I love love the phrase you used of reweaving. That's such a beautiful metaphor for sort of the way that, that we're finding our way back to these goddess traditions in both a sacred and a a lived way that this is, you know, this is not something that we're sort of doing that's separate from our daily lives, but we're trying to weave those two things back together. Yeah, I certainly understand it that way. And I think the act of braiding and the act of weaving is active, you know? And so a lot of people in my community say, well, what's your source for that? And what's your reference for that? And of course, I do do a lot of research. But uh, my answer a lot of the time is, well, it is because it is and because we do it. So something is Assyrian culture because we are culturally embodying it. And we don't necessarily have to like prove our legitimacy because of an ancient source or artifact, if that makes sense. And I think that's a trap a lot of First Nations and Indigenous people get put into sometimes where we must prove our legitimacy and we must prove continuity um, in order to be taken seriously. But then that sort of, that thinking rejects, you know, how many generations of women who were violently removed from our language and violently removed from our cultural practices, but who I think kept up with these kind of mystical practices that they probably couldn't even describe. Um, But then I will do research and go, wow, we were smoking doorways (laughs) 12,000 years ago. My mum smokes doorways, you know? So it's kind of, yeah. And so that's the re- the rebraiding, I suppose. We go back, but we go forward as well. So, yeah. Yeah. You had said, uh, Anakina, that you were an unlikely priestess. You had told, uh, you had mentioned that to us before we came on. And so listening to this, it sounds like you are pulled into this through an ancestral tradition and through a calling and, and finding your way to to this goddess through other goddesses. Why do you think of yourself as an unlikely priestess, given that there's so many, it seems to be so many strands that pull you in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think the word priestess is so loaded for me and it's it's an uncomfortable term still. I think because, you know, I grew up 
in an uncomfortable relationship to religion, to faith, to spirituality, um, I was and still am a really logical person, which of course all people are, right? But this was this was my misinterpretation of relating to deity. And so the unlikely priestess bit is you know, in my everyday life, I have a really serious job that's based on evidence and research and, you know, the rational mind. And then entering the world of metaphor and mytho-poetries and mysteries feels um, really compelling on one hand and really terrifying on another hand. And you sort of, you're afraid to make mistakes and you don't want to get it wrong. You know, you kind of like, I also feel the burden of um, misrepresenting my community somehow that could be harmful or detrimental. Um, And so for a long time, I shied away from ever publicly speaking about Ishtar or, you know, my relationship to her, which shifted when I turned 40 a few years ago. A colleague of mine, a First Nations colleague of mine said, actually, it's really important you share this story. I think people in your community would really value hearing how you're grappling with relating to an ancestor deity that has sort of not been publicly honoured for a really long time. Um, Maybe other people would like to publicly honour her, and of course they do, so... The unlikely bit is, yeah, I was never sort of priestessing in the community or anything like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just sort of tell stories and I suppose storytelling can be really a a healing, comforting um, process. Um, And I found that telling the story of the descent um, to a small group of people. We've created an online community where we grapple with each gate each month. Oh, um, that's wonderful. Wow, that's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the feedback I get is remarkable. Like, And there are women and facilitators and trans people and people of all genders and all cultures in this community. Nice. Yeah, there. everyone has a relationship and this profound, you know, experience which blows me away. And I think that's the unlikely bit is like that. And I feel that, yeah, Ishtar has compelled me to tell her story to whoever will listen and whoever's drawn to it. And then the, the mysterious transformational work happens through her if that makes sense so absolutely yeah yeah I mean we we are such story to, as human beings our brains are wired for narrative and so simply telling these stories that have lasted for so long there is something there has got to be some divinity and profundity and and transformational power woven in the very fiber of these stories, because even now, as we tell them, they still have power. They still are able to transform. I, I, I feel like sometimes there is a, there is an element of just, it's not about us. It's about the story, right? Like just trust the story, just tell the story and the story will do the work. Right. Yeah. 
And, you know, one concept I um, encountered in my postgraduate work um, was the way that we are constantly co-authoring the text with nature, you know, like Mm. as natural biological beings, we are always interrelated. And I think this is why Ishtar is the goddess of all relational love because the cosmic principle is relational. You know, we are all you know, we are all interconnected all the time. Um, And I think this is why she descends. And absolutely, it is compelling of how this ancient story um, is very much alive. And I've begun to think of a lot of things from that framework now, you know, it's become a framework um, to understand life and death for me, you know, and I think other people. I've always wondered in, in listening to stories of from people in the goddess community, um, just coming from my own faith tradition and trying to understand what, you know, Donna and I talked about this as well, what these, what the essence, the essence of the, the faith tradition of, let's say, a particular goddess tradition would be. What I wonder about is you, you were talking about storytelling and nature and biology and sort of the very naturalistic notions of the divine. I've often, I wonder, is there for you, and this is obviously something you can answer for yourself, but is there for you, does a goddess like Ishtar represent a higher force or a higher being or something you can call upon? Or does she represent specifically a tradition of understanding the world around you as opposed to actually being a a, a force or an energy that's out there? Yeah, that's a good question. I've been asking myself that a lot lately um, because I've found a few really old prayers to Ishtar and how my ancestors actually turned to her and the kinds of words they used. And, you know, I would probably say the short answer to that is both. I understand her as both now. When I first met her, I I absolutely understood her as sort of the cosmic creative intelligence. And you don't need to have a relationship to deity or faith to understand that, you know, there is this awe-inspiring creative power all around us all the time that is, you know, utterly mystifying and remarkable but then does is that warm and fuzzy? Not really, you know, um, but I think you can respect it. Yeah, and I think for a long time I just stood in respect to that intelligence, you know, um, mm. and that's I think that's what helped me build trust in the intelligence and then the trust led to, um you know, opening my heart, I suppose, to, you know, the morning and evening star and then realising, hey, Ishtar's kind of been following me around for a really long time and sort of making connections to her. So now when I walk through life, I do I do walk with this kind of reverence to her as, as deity I could turn to as an energetic force. Yeah, definitely. But that came a lot later that wasn't intuitive for me actually interesting interesting yeah she did you mentioned a morning and evening star she is uh closely associated with um both the she is uh often called uh the 
the goddess of the stars or um, goddess of the morning star, goddess of the evening star. And in those two aspects, um, the morning star, uh, there is sort of a personification there of her as her um, warrior goddess self that she arrays uh, herself in armor and uh, drives a chariot drawn by seven lions and sets off, you know, as the morning star in the morning to hunt. But that as the evening star, she uh, becomes the goddess of love and is associated in some in some scholarly works with the sort of idea of, you know, the the sacred prostitution and the temple, the temple women, which, you know, the scholarship on that is is uh, not by any means um, concrete. I think sometimes the um, the Western patriarchal scholars are all too eager to interpret non-patriarchal forms of sex as prostitution. Um, right. We've talked about that a lot. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, I, I yeah. just, I think it's not, you can't put too fine a point on it. I think we really do have to point out that these scholars we get, I get furious about, and don't get furious about. We'll take anything they see as in a matriarchal format and somehow undermine it in some way, or diminish it, or the, what they might think would be sully it. So cheapen yeah, it, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have to think of a, take it with a grain of salt. I was going to say that's a really critical point about interpreting texts because the first time we saw these texts interpreted, they were interpreted by English men in the early to mid 1800s and it's only sort of new and modern reinterpretations who have actually said actually that word has never been used that's an interpretation Um, and one such word for example um, is the term eunuch and Stephanie Daly, who's an Oxford scholar, reinterprets the descent myth in the late 80s and says, actually, there's no part of this myth that even uses that term. Um, and we need to re-understand gender and sexuality and, and gender identity in, in different ways. So, yeah, definitely take it with a grain of salt, because if you don't, if you're not interpreting from the original language or original text, you could be misled, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there is some work about how, you know, that that her temple worship and her her love worship was gender fluid in a sense, that there was a sense of gender fluidity that was a a part of that understanding. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's remarkable and rich literature on gender fluid fluidity transness, gender all-encompassingness, and different relationships altogether of um, how Ishtar's priests and priestesses actually understood uh, performing their own identities and falling in love. Yeah, that's been largely erased by colonial interpretation. So I think we're at an exciting time um, of sort of revisiting some of these texts and going, actually, is that the story or can we understand it in a new way? Or an old way, you know, go back to actually understanding the way it was meant to be performed rather than placing this sort of patriarchal 
binary, as you mentioned earlier, binary lens on everything. Precisely. And another aspect of her that uh, I just wanted to touch on that we have actually mentioned when we talked about um, Aphrodite is that a lot of these goddesses that have that sort of came to be interpreted as goddesses of love, goddesses of sex, as you mentioned, the sort of Ishtar babe, you know, uh, coloring of it, that um, these goddesses were originally goddesses of both love and war, that Aphrodite was actually originally uh, both a goddess of battle and a goddess of love, and that our society in in our sort of, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus mindset, sees those two things as separate, as, as, as far apart from each other as they can be. But many of these older goddesses, these sort of OG goddesses, often combined those two things in their worship and and saw no, you know, saw no sort of inherent contradiction or cognitive dissonance with that, that these two things were very intertwined. They show up a lot. I mean, we, we talked about Freya uh, in the past uh, in the Norse pantheon, and we talked about some of the Celt pantheon where you have these sort of sex, love, war goddesses. So, I mean, they're clearly there's something very early on in human history that has that understanding of how those things are connected, where those drives are connected, and how women are connected to those things. Yeah, it, it actually makes me think also of what Stephanie said about how um, Stephanie Tate, who was our Norse pagan witch um, guest and who also came on to talk about Ran, um, that... She was raised to believe that, you know, women are the warriors and men are the nurturers. And so this sort of this sort of That's association right. between sex and war um, sort of plays into that idea that Western civilization kind of has it backwards. Yeah. And like I think Western women really fought back against that engineering. Um, of the binary, you know, that women are passive, nurturing, lovely, and war is this, you know, the, the domain of men. I think a lot of us really internalize that and have fought back. And I think that's why the goddess is so immensely popular again, because she does create space for the entire picture to be present in the one kind of drive. And I think What's compelling for me is that that's, that makes her a little bit unknowable. It makes her a little bit tricksy, you know. It makes her the one that can move between the worlds um, and do the extraordinary, you know. So that's wonderful. We're, we're coming towards the end of our time. So I'm just wondering if there are any particular aspects of your devotion that you'd like to share or you think that would be helpful for listeners who might be interested in, in looking more deeply into Ishtar, our story and her practice? The one thing if I could say about Ishtar is I like her role as a goddess of grief and loss. I think that her descent to the underworld allows for us modern seekers to find new narratives um, about taboo. And I feel like in, in modern day cultures, we've internalized a taboo about 
grief, about death and dying, about loss, um, and about, you know, the cosmic cycles of um, regeneration and, and loss. And so I kind of feel like what's interesting about Ishtar and why she has such wide appeal is she's sort of making space for the underworld, you know, or what people call the shadow aspect. And a lot of, a lot of us are even relating her descent myth to the collective story of loss and grief um, and not just individualized ones. That's, I think if I could say one thing, it would be that, that I'm glad that Ishtar's guiding us again to re-understand the way we we move through uh, grief and loss that's wonderful so um we hadn't talked about this beforehand so I don't want to spring it on you but um Anakuna would you would you feel comfortable ending on a prayer to Ishtar um, yeah, look, the prayers to Ishtar that I have translated from the Akkadian, not myself, right. um, are really long, um, but I can share a few lines if you'd like. That would be lovely, yeah. So this one that I have is an incantation prayer to Ishtar. Um, it was translated from the Akkadian by Anna Elise Zernecki. And it's from an anthology called Reading Akkadian Prayers and Hymns. And it goes a little bit like this. Pure Ishtar, most high among the gods, the one who makes a fight, arranges battle, splendid one, most perfect of goddesses, at your command, Ishtar, humankind is guided aright. The sick one who sees your face lives. At your command, Ishtar, the blind one sees the light. And I'll leave it at there. Oh, that gave, that gave me chills. That was wonderful. Thank you for Beautiful. sharing that. On that note, just leave it as um, this has been in praise of the goddess Ishtar. And we've been joined by Anukina. And of course, as always, Don Sam Alden. And, of course, Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you. And uh, we hope you all have experienced something really wonderful with this, and we'll be back very soon. Thanks. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. Bye.